0: That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.
2: You are listening to Parliament Matters, a Hansard Society production supported by the Joseph Roundtree Charitable Trust. Learn more at hansardsociety.org.uk slash PM.
0: Hello and welcome to a special edition of Parliament Matters. I'm Mark Darcy. And I'm Ruth Fox. And this time for your seasonal delectation, we have an extended interview with Lord Liz Vane, formerly Robert Rogers, formerly Clerk of the House of Commons. We talk to him about his experiences transitioning from an official of one house to a full member of the other, about how John Burko transformed the proceedings of Parliament on his advice, and about constitutional decay and what it might mean for the future of Parliament. So Ruth and I have come into the precincts of Parliament to talk to someone I used to playfully refer to as the High Priest of Parliament, Robert Rogers, now Lord Lisvane, former Clerk of the House of Commons, now a crossbench peer. We decided to come and talk to him about the state of the Constitution, about the state of the very institution of Parliament itself. And Robert, I wanted to begin by asking you, Personally, as a, as a sort of long-standing servant of the House of Commons and now a member of the House of Lords, how do you feel about Parliament? Do you regard it as, as almost a, a relative in serious decline now, as you think
1: about it? Well, it's certainly a much-loved relative, if that, is the, if that is the case. I've been in this building now almost 52 years, and I do have a great love and respect for the institution. One needs to expect that it will be buffeted by circumstances, that it will pick itself up and carry on. There's a great tendency, I think, which is wrong, to see Parliament as an organisation. Parliaments aren't organisations, they're organisms. And any biologist will tell you that an organism is unpredictable, reactive, it, and uh, Parliament is all of those three things. That's one of the things that makes it almost addictive and one of the things which I think characterises the way it operates and uh, always has and always will operate. So I do love it. I am not blind to its imperfections. But one of the most useful things I think one can do is to make it more effective. I always used to say reform is always the wrong word because what it means is change of which the person speaking approves. What you need to concentrate on is effectiveness. What should Parliament be doing? How well does it do it? And can it do it better?
0: What of your own position within Parliament? Because for many years you were a servant of the House of Commons and now you're a member of the House of Lords. It slightly put me in mind in a plot line in one of the early episodes of Downton Abbey where, where the chauffeur marries into the family. Uh, do you feel in that kind of position?
1: <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not required these days to use my technical expertise very much, although I do get involved in constitutional and uh, legislative questions. So I, I find that I'm a little out of show life in terms of what goes on under the bonnet. But yes, it is a remarkable change of perspective. I've been very, very lucky because in the Commons, I've done really all the jobs that I wanted to do, and it gave me an opportunity in different circumstances, The developing of the select committee system, the improvement, bit of a way to go still, but the improvement of the legislative system. The six years I spent as clerk of the Defence Committee at the time of the Cold War and all sorts of other things happening, I've always had the jobs that I wanted to do and always had an opportunity of, um, I don't know, to follow your your metaphor, tweaking the carburettor or whatever it might be, or indeed putting a new engine in from time to time. You've
0: been talking a lot
1: recently about
0: what you refer to as constitutional decay, the state of the Constitution being sort of crumbling, a bit like the the buildings of Parliament itself, maybe a sort of living metaphor there. Uh,
1: What do you mean by constitutional decay? Well, I don't think I'm the only person who's been talking about that, and it probably reflects a widening concern about our constitutional arrangements. And, of course, I call them constitutional arrangements. We don't have a constitution. We have a melange of statute, standing orders, precedent, expectations, and, of course, that, that wonderfully British expectation of fair play. And that has been under a lot of pressure. And a lot of the wounds, of course, are, are self-inflicted. We don't really notice our constitutional arrangements until things start to go wrong. And over the last three, four, five years, they've gone very wrong indeed. We've had a prime minister recommending to his sovereign a shabby tactical prorogation found by the Supreme Court to be unlawful. We've had legislation empowering ministers to ignore international obligations and we all remember the concept of breaking the law only in a specific and limited way, which of course I shall try on Thames Valley Police if they stop me on the way home from our meeting today. We've had prime ministers chosen by 0.08% of the population. We've had a flood of legislation much, much too much for any sensible scrutiny, uh, beautifully drafted by the experts in Parliamentary Council. But of course, you can't make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. We see the House of Commons virtually resigning from the process of legislative scrutiny and the focus moving to the House of Lords, which is perhaps a reminder of one of the things that the House of Lords does very well. You look over the road at the civil service, it's hollowed out, it's badly led. Some people don't think it's really being led at all. We have ministers move at a dizzying pace. Their relations with their officials are not terribly good. We have government by announcement. There is a five-point plan for everything rather than actually dealing with the particular problem. And sometimes I yearn for the, the Clement Attlee executive approach where things were allotted to a minister and a minister had to deal with them and get them right. And if the minister didn't do that, he, mainly he in those days, was out. Um, And my worry about all these things happening is threefold. The first thing is that the quality of our governance has nosedived. And the second is that the average citizen looking at the Constitution as interpreted by Fred Carnot, which seems to be the, the current theme, is inclined to say a plague on both, or indeed all, your houses and to disengage with the political and electoral process. And I think that is very dangerous indeed.
0: Well, coming from someone who, as it were, operated the system, that's a pretty devastating bill of indictment. But the thing that really jumped out at me was your remark that the House of Commons has virtually resigned
1: from the legislative process. So tell us a bit more about that. It's difficult to put one's finger on it. I think that the expectations that members of Parliament have of what they should be doing have changed. I mean, of course, they've been changing over the last 20, 30, 40 years. But the succession of events, first of all, there was the 2019 election and the extremely lightheaded approach to to politics with uh, the return of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. And a lot of new members came in, of course, with no experience of Parliament uh, there was not the process, which you and I will remember from way back, whereby mentors, trustees, uh, would talk to new members. They would take them under their wing. They would tell them, this is how you do things.
0: Exacerbated a bit, I suppose, by the fact that Covid struck pretty rapidly at the start of that parliament, and they all had to go back to their constituents. Well,
1: that was the double whammy, because they started off almost semi-detached. Covid made them almost completely detached online, They came back, and trying to reinvent a culture of exacting legislative scrutiny, of calling the government to account, was extremely difficult. And it was made more difficult by the fact that with the hollowing out of local government and the unavailability of a lot of local government services, it seems that members of parliament have on their desks many things which they just should not be dealing with but where there is a substantial political imperative that they should deal with them. And so Members of Parliament, of course, are chased from pillar to post by all sorts of competing obligations and requirements. But this one, I think, is starting to get in the way of what should be the constitutional role of a Member of Parliament.
2: What do you think then, Robert, with an election pending, what do you think would turn it around we have a new cohort of MPs coming in what changes might improve things
1: i was going to add and i said there were three implications of this constitutional decay i was going to add a third one which is that there might be a feeling that we should have a written constitution and i tell you a, a silly story about that because i was uh, due to debate in oxford with a very senior member of the judiciary, just retired. I offered to give him a, a lift to Oxford. And uh, as we got on to the M40, he said... Um can you remember which of us is supposed to be supporting the idea of a written constitution (laughs) and which of us is supposed to be criticising it? I said, I'm terribly sorry, I just can't remember. So I'm afraid our thespian qualities, as we were in violent agreement that the one thing we did not need was a written constitution, our thespian abilities were stretched in order to manufacture the disagreement necessary for the debate. But I don't think that a written constitution is the right result. There might be elements of codification, only elements which might help. But the odd thing about all this is that a hell of a lot of things can be done by the government of the day without legislation, without some sort of constitutional convention or anything of that sort. And indeed, I've got a bit of a a shopping list here. I would say don't move ministers unless there's a really good reason. Give them three or four years in the job so they can actually master it and know enough in order to have a mutually respectful relationship with their civil servants. Abandon the mad, the insane civil service rule Mm. that in order to be promoted you've got to move to a different area. That is a recipe for losing institutional knowledge which actually serves the executive well and serves Parliament well. Make sure civil servants, in ministers, private offices in post for longer, make sure they really understand Parliament because that will make a difference. Use draft bills. Very difficult in the first session of a Parliament because Parliamentary Council are, as it were, occupied with the first flush of legislation. But it ought to be the rule, not the exception, that you have... A joint committee of both houses, which commends itself to the business managers because you only have one bite at it instead of, let's say, two committees doing the things in different houses. And they hear evidence from people who are going to be affected by the legislation who really know about it. And that injection of the outside discipline into the legislative process, I think, will be hugely important. Delegated legislation and uh, Ruth, you spent a great deal of time on this, and I think your ideas and mine are absolutely in lockstep, don't put big chunks of policy and principle into delegated legislation. And there is a hidden danger there, because if that's where the policy and principle resides, then you are starting to say to the House of Lords, if you don't like this, instead of agreeing an amendment to the primary legislation, to the bill, get at it later on by voting down the SI that contains this policy and principle. And, of course, if Henry VIII clauses, and it's very important to make a distinction between Henry VIII clauses which allow ministers to amend any bill on the statute book, usually, and horrifyingly, uh, a bill actually going through Parliament. And you ask why? Uh, that the, this exacting process uh, can be overturned by a minister making an SI with relatively light scrutiny later on. So there's a distinction between that and the hugely wide delegated powers, because that offends against the government's good law principles.
2: In terms of the MPs themselves, what changes do you think would help them to, to be better scrutineers?
1: I think that draft bills would make a big difference. I think a loosening of the legislative programming constraints would. I, If you allow me to get a hobby horse out of the stable for a moment, I am very keen on purpose clauses, so that when you've got what may be an insanely complicated bill, and particularly if it's a technical one on some financial arrangements or, I don't know, planning or something like that, you actually get a statement, which is in plain English, which is very clear, plain English, at the beginning of each part of the bill, each chapter or part, however the bill is subdivided, that says, this is designed to achieve X, so that you can actually, as a non-expert and Members of Parliament, with very few exceptions, are, are, are not experts. And that's good. That's very good. They're bringing an informed lay opinion to the job they're doing. You can actually debate the worth of achieving that end rather than rather artificially getting tied up in the clockwork of the detailed drafting. And I think it would actually be very helpful to the courts because this elusive... Idea: this elusive concept of the will of Parliament, which tends to mean these days the will of the government, can actually be deduced because you know what Parliament thinks about legislating in this particular way to achieve a particular end. So I think those are some of the things that might make their jobs easier. Lightening the burden of of constituency casework, especially where it isn't really the Member of Parliament's business, um, Tam D.L. many years ago told me a story about his making a, an intervention as a very young member in his local patch. And he got a rather stroppy letter from one of his local councillors later. And it said, Dear Tam, for very short, Dear Tam, war and peace, your business. Dogshit, my business. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what you seem to be working round to here is the suggestion that the problem is not so much with the letter of constitutional practice and the structure of the system, but more the behaviour of the people who operate it, particularly ministers and the way government handles legislation through Parliament. So the fault is not so much in parliamentarian
1: stars, but in themselves. I think that's right. And it is very frustrating that you don't need some great complex construct of a new constitution, a written constitution or great codification, whatever it happens to be. You need the government of the day to realise where these failings are. And it could be done tomorrow morning. The Prime Minister could, could wake up tomorrow morning. I mean, he's got enough things to occupy himself with at the moment. But let us say that this obtruded into his breakfast cornflakes. And he could say, we're not going to do it that way anymore. We're going to do it this way. I'm not going to move ministers round so that you have a new minister or a new Secretary of State every year. Some years you have three, you know, this sort of thing. How can you possibly, it is no way to run a government, but it is something which can be dealt with virtually instantly. And I think if you start with changing the culture in that way, a lot of other things will follow. You will have to do quite a good balancing act between perhaps losing or modifying some of the powers and freedom of action you have at the moment but, of course, that is the whole idea of the relationship between the executive and the legislature. The legislature is there to call government to account, and government must allow the legislature to do that job, and it must take notice of what the legislature says when it does.
0: What bits of Parliament do you think are actually working well? People often point to the select committee system in the House of Commons as something where the performance has gone up.
1: Is, is that your view? Yes, absolutely. When I first came to the House of Commons as a callow young assistant clerk, um, we Not had... give us a date, 1972. But it was rather a creaking select committee system, which, of course, was streamlined and made really fit for purpose by the St. John Stevens Engineered Reforms of 1979, which, of course, came from an inquiry by the Commons Procedure Committee. And that was a huge advance. And select committees have got this great quality that successful ones, and most of them are pretty successful, they get their members to leave the political baggage at the door of the room. They rely on the evidence that they take. They provide an alternative view which might well not come through, as it were, party structures because it might be something which could be seen by the faint-hearted as politically damaging. So that if, for example, they were to change the classification of drugs, that's something a select committee could recommend, and the Home Affairs Select Committee did many years ago, but which neither government nor opposition could actually bring forward because it would be seen as toxic. So they can do a fantastic job, and almost most important is that they give public access to the parliamentary process lots of things we do in this place in the commons and in the lords they're done in a westminster bubble but getting people who really know about the subject to inform a select committee inquiry from outside to my mind is beyond price
2: when you were clerk of the House of Commons you were the architect really behind the scenes of many of the ideas that emerged and were brought forward by Speaker John Burko, particularly the urgent question, the restoration of the urgent question and making the House of Commons a more topical chamber and sort of more vibrant in terms of addressing the day-to-day issues on the news agenda. How do you think the impacts of those reforms and what would you do now? What would you, if, you were, if you were advising a speaker what would be your recommendations?
1: I put together something that became known as the 30-point plan. I think it was 30 points. (laughs) I can't remember how many. But I circulated it quite widely. I was clerk assistant at the time, when John Burko was one of the, if memory serves, ten candidates vying to be Speaker in 2009. And the use of the urgent question was something that I I put forward. Now, and it was hardly ever done under Speaker Martin. Speaker Burko grabbed it with enthusiasm, uh, there's always a danger, of course, that you dilute the advantages, because the advantages are topicality, bringing the government to the chamber to answer on something which they probably don't want to answer on, uh, but they can be overdone. And then they become one more, as it were, piece of routine. Um, I won't go through all the points, and, <laughs> and I don't think we've got time for that. But I think a lot of the things that would make a difference are the things we've touched on before. Doing government properly and doing government properly will feed very quickly into doing parliament properly. If you ask me about the House of Lords, as you you just have, I think the House of Lords does a great job. I think in two senses, it does it in legislative scrutiny. I'm extremely sceptical about the idea of line-by-line scrutiny, which is the phrase always trotted out. I don't know quite how effective that is. But the House of Lords has done some really, really useful things in taking out what might have been baneful provisions in bills. Unfortunately, on those occasions, the Commons put them back in, or rather the government put them back in. And the other, of course, is calling government to account, because The two Houses, and I think it's very important to try and get this message over to people, they don't compete. They should not be competing, and that puts forward an entirely false prospectus for what Parliament is doing. They're complementary. They do things which are identifiably similar, but they do them in different ways, and to take select committees as an example, in the Commons there is the vertical arrangement where... A select committee scrutinizing a government department drills down into the associated public bodies, the regulators, the people on the fringes, all the rest. In the Lords, it's absolutely across the scene. So that, for example, the International Agreements Committee doesn't look just, just at international agreements, it looks at the possible effect. You've got economic affairs, you've got foreign affairs and defense, international affairs and defense. And uh, that, I think, is a, is a great strength. But, uh, just to go back to what you could do tomorrow. These aren't quite things you could do tomorrow, but you could certainly say you're going to do tomorrow from Number 10 Downing Street to make the House of Lords Appointments Commission statutory so that prime ministers could not overrule its decisions. And we might get back to the idea of two out, one in, which the Burns Committee suggested uh, as a way forward for reducing the house to no larger than the house of commons.
0: So every time a peer was appointed it could only be done if two other peers were going. Uh, well
1: I think you'd smooth it out it wouldn't it wouldn't as it were be a balloon debate. One one. <laughs> <laughs> but you would need a mechanism to recognize political majorities or political outcomes of the previous general election. But if you had a tight control on who was coming into the house And you were really pretty demanding about what time and energy they would give to their membership of the House. And if you managed to stamp out what people see as a corrupt, potentially corrupt system of appointments, then I think that would be great for the House of Lords image. It would make the House more effective over time. And it would be something that you could say on day one. Now, Peter Hennessy has uh, famously described Lord's Reform as the Bermuda Triangle of politics, (laughs) and there's no doubt that it is a a political graveyard. So I think if I were Keir Starmer, and if I were looking at power after the next election, I would say, well, we do need to think about whether we go full Gordon Brown and have a sort of assembly of the, the nations and regions, or do we do incremental reform? But I think people want to see that it is recognised that some sort of reform needs to be made.
0: Now, the problem with an awful lot of political reforms is that they involve the government of the day giving away power over, say, Lord's appointments, as you've just been discussing. And that's very easy to discuss in abstract at some sort of conference of constitutional scholars. But when you're an incoming prime minister, and we may well have an incoming prime minister in the next 12 months, uh, you've suddenly got all this lovely power to play with. It's a very different prospect, surrendering a lot of it. And not the problem here not so much what shall we do, but how do you actually get it done when the people who would have to do it have to surrender quite a lot of uh, power and influence?
1: It recalls to my mind the um, practice in a Roman triumph where the general in his chariot being cheered by the crowds always had a slave behind him muttering, remember thou art mortal. The same thing might be said of an incoming prime minister. There are a lot of things, some of the things I was suggesting earlier on, which can be done where you get a lot of brownie points for doing them, and it doesn't make a huge difference to what happens. For example, just to pick out Ruth's special <laughs> interest, <laughs> interest in delegated legislation, you don't have to have huge issues of principle and policy in delegated legislation – put them in primary legislation, have them properly looked at. Now, that is not taking power away. It is probably annoying the civil service because, of course, it is very convenient to the, as it were, the apparat of an executive to be able to do that because it sidesteps Parliament. But it is a fundamentally wrong thing to do to sidestep Parliament and to deny Parliament its role as the representative and the protector of the citizens. So I think there are quite a few things that, you know, it's not going to be the end of the world if an incoming prime minister does some of this stuff. You know, we're not suggesting that there should be a confirmation vote on members of the cabinet, for example. I mean, this is, this is quite limited stuff. It is, I suppose, it could be criticized as being niche. But if it is niche, it is something that applies very, very widely across the polity and across the business of the executive and of the legislature. Perhaps the the slave might have to speak a little more loudly, but it's something which a prime minister who wanted to fix his reputation for future years might well be attracted by.
2: I mean, some of this is niche, obviously, but what we're talking about as well is, is a, a return to a more effective policy development process. I mean, the days of green papers, white papers, proper consultation processes before legislating, which obviously builds in the question of time. Can I ask about another niche constitutional question that's perhaps not something discussed in sort of wider society down at the the dog and duck, but has been high in the debate uh, this week over the Rwanda Bill, this question of parliamentary sovereignty, and it sort of gets bandied about by members of parliament. You've been in and around Westminster, as you say, for for 50 years. You've seen perspective from both houses. What does parliamentary sovereignty mean? Can you explain it to our listeners?
1: In a word, no. (laughs) (laughs) I think if you're going to tackle the, the subject what you need to do is you need to start with the words <laughs> parliament has legislative sovereignty and if you go back to Badgett, his uh, remark that uh, uh, the queen sign her own death warrant if both houses bring it up to her duly approved there is no doubt that parliament can legislate as it sees fit there are constraints there are constraints as we have very much in our everybody has in their minds over the the Rwanda debate whether the ECHR represents and the possibility of Strasbourg intervention is something which can constrain Parliament. And the answer is that, strictly speaking, it can't. The courts can take a view on whether something does break an international agreement, but Parliament can legislate to whatever effect Parliament sees fit. Now, the whole business of Parliamentary sovereignty, I think, is a is it's a phrase which is thrown around, and the the thrower and the target depends very much on on the subject. I've no doubt that Mr. Francois, for example, has a very keen idea of what parliamentary sovereignty is, and it means that Parliament can do what he and his colleagues would like to see done. Well, that is actually true. But the idea of parliamentary sovereignty as being some sort of panacea, I think, is is overdone. Or perhaps a better way of describing it is that it is not thought about sufficiently, exactingly, that it becomes simply a phrase, oh, well, parliamentary sovereignty. I think it is important to have legislative sovereignty in mind and how that works out in the what may be a very complex interplay between executive parliament and the courts. So legislative sovereignty means parliament says what the law is. Exactly. That is something that parliament does. That's something that we are all here to do. And the better we do it, then the better that relationship will be. And it does not become an abrasive relationship between parliament and the courts. And
0: that's one of the things that seems to be happening a little bit more at the moment is that Parliament and the Court seem to be treading on one another's toes a little bit more than is quite comfortable.
1: Comfortable for whom? (laughs) Both. (laughs) Yes, I think so. As long as you have a Supreme Court. And I was very doubtful about the Supreme Court to begin with. Its first president, I remember, told me that he was keen to see it as a constitutional court. And I found that uh, very worrying because it invites the question of what is something which is constitutional upon which it can rule now it is very interesting that in Miller one and Miller two, both David Newberger and brenda Hale
0: uh, this incidentally was the Miller one and Miller two were the cases against
1: the prorogation of parliament yeah uh, in, indeed, and uh, Miller one was the necessity to have a parliamentary authority, a statutory authority, for invoking, leaving the European Union. Um, They began their reading out of the judgment in each of those two cases by making it clear that what they were talking about was the law, the black letter law, and the interpretation of that. And I think as long as the Supreme Court operates in that way, uh, it's very difficult for Parliament or anybody else to object to what they're doing. So I don't think that there is too much treading on toes because the Supreme Court and the uh, Divisional Court in in those two cases have been very careful indeed not to do that. There are
0: plenty of people, um, Dr. Hannah White at the Institute for Government, for example, who, who said that actually the state of the buildings of Parliament and the, the lack of repair and the general... Uh, sense that you, know, you have to run fire patrols to prevent the whole place burning down and spend vast amounts of money on that is is actually quite a quite a good sort of metaphor for the state of the British constitution. Do you buy into that metaphor?
1: I absolutely do. I think Hannah's uh, uh, interpretation is correct. Uh, you don't have to tell me about the horrors of uh, trying to deal with a decaying building. I spent some time as a corporate officer. Looking over my shoulder at the uh, corporate manslaughter and corporate homicide act 2007, which, if anything serious goes wrong, puts the corporate officer in the dock without argument. So Uh,
0: so if a parliamentary
1: gargoyle falls on someone, you're the person who's uh, facing the judge. Indeed, that is absolutely the case, and uh, you know you don't get a, an opportunity to uh, suggest who might be an appropriate target for the parliamentary <laughs> gargoyle falling down. But the place is, is really, I'm looking out of the window now, at decayed stonework, which is going to need huge repair. It's not operated properly as a building, even though you might be tempted to think so if all you saw was the ground floor, the principal floor. I commissioned the first condition survey of uh, with my lord's opposite number of the palace when I became clerk in 2011. It reported four months later with the judgment that doing nothing was not an option, and we have done nothing. And, and that was how many years ago? <laughs> well, that was that was um, just coming up to 12 years ago. There have been huge amounts of surveys and all the rest of it, you know, some very detailed stuff, but things have not started. And I think this business of a decaying constitution and a decaying building has a a very worrying mutual resonance.
0: I mean, there has been a, a, a suggestion that some of your successors as clerks of the Commons and the Lords might reach the point where they balk at insisting that staff continue to go into the building, especially if work is being attempted around them.
1: Yes, that's absolutely correct. It didn't really occur in my day, but obviously things are getting worse. And if there were to be a catastrophic failure of services, or a fire, or a collapse of some part of the building, it would be much worse for us than it was for the French with Notre Dame. And I think a lot of people would say, well, there you are, that's politics, that's the Constitution, and it's falling to bits. And that, I think, in terms of trying to do something sensible about our constitutional arrangements, is a ghastly warning.
0: And on the subject of ghastly warnings, if you'll forgive the very clumsy segue, um, you've been presiding over a House of Lords select committee on a very specific issue, which is the emergence of what are called autonomous weapon systems. I think of it as kind of the Terminator inquiry, the idea that uh, robot weapons could soon be used to fight wars and also the the, the prospect that the robot weapons might prove to be out with human control from time to time.
1: Yes, um, we've been doing that inquiry. It's one of the Lords Special Inquiries Committees for 2023. Uh, I think it's a really good example, actually, of the Lords being rather nimble a system of special inquiries com- uh, inquiry committees. There are four uh, each year. Uh, they have to complete their work within a year, and it's a very good way of turning the spotlight onto something which is moving fast up the agenda of political and public concern. And I was fortunate enough to chair the Committee on Artificial Intelligence and Weapons Systems. This is something, and you've already used the word, Mark, of terminator, This is something which gets blown up in the public consciousness. Blown up may not be the right phrase, but it's (laughs) something which uh, appears in the public consciousness as a sort of horror story waiting to happen. And on the other end of the spectrum, uh, there are people saying, no, 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 don't worry, it's all going to be absolutely fine. So one of the things we did is what select committees ought to do, which is to provide a hugely evidence-based platform for informed public debate. And I think that that is what we have done. We've also entitled the report Proceed with Caution. And uh, the Ministry of Defence says that its policy on this subject is to be ambitious, safe and responsible. But we don't think that the places are there on the board to allow them to achieve that.
0: Can they be all three at the same time?
1: (laughs) Yes, I, I think they can. But, for example... We were rather surprised that the Ministry of Defence has no definition of what an autonomous weapon system is. I mean, it may be like a camel. You, you know what it is when you see it. But if you're going to seek international regulation and agreement, which was a key part of our recommendations, then you do need to have a robust definition of what an autonomous weapon system is, which we gave them. I uh, said, please adopt this. Because otherwise, you may find that the bar is so high that lots of things which most people would recognise as AWS systems
0: are not caught. Is the definition of an autonomous weapon system essentially one that can decide to shoot without a human ever being involved in the decision? If it is
1: fully autonomous, then inevitably that's what it is. But a central part of our inquiry was to establish what, in the jargon, meaningful human control means. Because if you're going to be compliant with international humanitarian law, then you cannot have a compliance system which is fully autonomous. There must be human intervention, whether it's a kill switch or whatever it is. But we said throughout the development, manufacture, deployment and use, there must be a moral agency of the people who are using that system. And if you don't have that, then you've gone off the scale in terms of compliance with international humanitarian law because you don't have meaningful human control.
0: But some of these systems have to react so fast that a human being can't really be in the decision loop if you're a system that's trying to stop a missile that's coming at you at supersonic speed. Or hypersonic speed, there isn't time for a human being to sort of sit down and ponder the
1: implications of shooting back. It's just got to happen and the machine just does it. To an extent. Um, but of course, there is such a system at the moment, Phalanx, which is used, it's mainly a naval application, and it is used to shoot down incoming missiles, and it's very effective. But there is meaningful human control there because there is a decision as to when you switch it on, what sort of parameters you allow it. And all of that is subject to what in British armed forces is extremely exacting, targeting a process of authorization. So that, uh, yeah, there's got to be... You know, you're, not, you're not waiting until something's in the sights and then pulling the trigger, but you are saying to the system, if this happens and this happens, then you can fire. And that does uh, circumstances alter cases, but that does introduce the necessary element of meaningful human control.
2: Your inquiry dealing with artificial intelligence and so on is at the sort of it's the frontiers of technological and scientific development at the moment. What kind of resources does your committee have to undertake that kind of inquiry? Sort of give our listeners some idea of of the kind of support and uh, that you have to do that kind of scrutiny.
1: A very good staff team, supplemented by two highly respected technical advisors, but. And here I go back to the method of operation of select committees. A huge number of witnesses appearing in person, putting in papers, which gave, uh, and if you look at the report, the way we take each of the uh, challenges, as it were, and go through the merits and demerits of the evidence which was given to us, you get, you know, we weren't asked to design a system. <laughs> so the, the technical element, you, you don't need that. If what you're doing is policy audit, which is effectively what we were doing, then you can draw your conclusions out of what for us was an extraordinarily wide spectrum of expert evidence and, incidentally, extremely useful to be able to do a lot of this online because you can talk to somebody at a research facility on the west coast of the United States, say, rather than uh, dragging them over to this uh, decaying building. And there, I fear we must leave it. Uh, Robert Rogers and all
0: this vein, thanks very much for joining us on the pod.
1: It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much, Mark, and thank you, Ruth.
2: Well, that's all from us for this week's episode of Parliament Matters. Please hit the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app to get the next episode as soon as it lands.
0: And help us to make the podcast better by leaving a rating or review on Apple or Spotify and sharing your feedback. Our producer tells us it's important for the algorithm to give the show a boost.
2: And Mark, tell us more about the algorithm.
0: What do I know about algorithms? You know, I write my scripts with a quill pen on vellum and then send it in my carrier pigeon.
2: Well, before we go, a quick reminder also that you can send us your questions on all things Parliament by visiting hansardsociety.org.uk slash PMUQ.
0: We'll be discussing them in future episodes, including our special Urgent Questions editions dedicated to what you want to know about Parliament.
2: And you can find us across social media at Hansard Society to get more content related to the show and the wider work of the Hansard Society. Parliament Matters is produced by the Hansard Society and supported by the Joseph Rowntree Charitable Trust. For more information, visit hansardsociety.org.uk or find us on social media at Hansard Society.
0: Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news! Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership.